This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 29th of September 2010. We got cut off a couple of times there at the other end there. I don't know what's happening. But anyway, I think I'm back on the air. I always start off by saying to go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and you'll find hundreds of audios for download. I get people all the time emailing me, asking me where my site is. I can't believe it. So I mention this every day at the start of the show. So remember, go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com bookmark all the other sites I've got up there. I've got stacks of them, and they're all emergency standbys in case the big ones go down. And uh, help yourself. They all also carry transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given in English for prints up. And if you want transcripts in other languages, go into alanwattsentinel.eu. You'll find that also listed at the com site, and you can take your pick from the various languages of the world. Now, Remember that you are the audience that bring me to you. I'm the host, supposedly, and you bring me to you because I don't go on as a business. I don't go on as um, a front for corporations who are selling things. I don't uh, accept the cash from advertisers, although I've had the offers. And that's okay. That's how most folk make their living, by um, the money from advertising, which is quite hefty, in fact, if you go for it. But it, again, it puts you in a little bit of a compromise because sometimes listeners will ask you what you think of this and that and this particular item or herb or whatever it happens to be. And you can't really give an honest answer if they were maybe sponsoring you, for instance. So this way I try to do it the cleanest possible way. And you suffer it in the meantime, of course, because it's up to you to buy the books I sell at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and helping through donations and keeping me going, because it's expensive to do what I do. This isn't an hour show. That's what you think it is. It's, here's an hour, and it's gone again. Uh, this, this will be uploaded till maybe one, one thirty, uh, sometimes 2 in the morning. And um, it's a seven-day-a-week uh, occupation. I wouldn't call it a job. Uh, if I wanted a job, I'd find one which was easier. And the reason I'm doing this is because it's a vital time to come out with the information and really try and wake up various countries to show them that what's happening in their countries is happening across across the whole world and how it's being um, implemented through international agreements by small bodies of men and your countries sign on to them to your detriment. That's what's really happening. Now we're back with more after the following break. 
Hi folks, I'm back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Remember too, to purchase the books I have for sale and the discs and so on, that's all I've put up there so far to keep me going. And from the US to Canada, you can buy them with a personal check. You can buy them with an international postal money order from your post office. You can use uh, PayPal to donate or to purchase. You want to purchase, send a donation, then a separate email with your name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. Remember, these books are different from the stuff you'll generally read out there. It's not written by the big CFR boys, and that really has has been giving you your history for about a 100 years. Same in Britain, too, and the same for the European community now. They have their own branch over the whole of Europe. So... Winston Churchill even brought that fact up, that in Parliament in Britain, that he was amazed that he was left outside the loop. And he said it was astonishing that a small group of very powerful, wealthy people and important people had been able to write the history uh, for all the school books uh, that everyone in Britain would read and spin it to their own designs. Well, nothing has changed because uh, George Orwell touched on it too. A true history goes down the memory hole, all the bad bits, you know, and uh, at least you with this sort of um, whitewashed, uh, kind of nicey-nicey, quaint uh, Anne of Green Gables idea of the past and how wonderful it all was, etc. And there's no mention of the incredible um, <laughs> horror of the industrial era uh, that they brought into some countries and they treated people just like they did with the the Chinese are getting treated today, the peasants of China and the factories. It was no different across Europe uh, and even some of the, the U.S. too at one point, uh, at one time. So, you know, these organizations all stem from the Milner Group. I've gone through the history, some of the history of the Milner Group. You have to read it for yourself, for those who can read. And because most folk today really cannot hold their attention for very long when they're reading something. And try not to get e-versions because you'll find you can't retain it off the screen. You cannot do so. Uh, too many people have told me the same things, uh, that they cannot retain it, but when you try the printed form, uh, they have uh, their memory comes back and actually starts working again. Big difference. But I've told you to go into the books by Professor Carl Quigley, who was the historian for America for the Council on Foreign Relations, and he went into the history of its parent company, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Now, these organizations call themselves institutions or non-governmental organizations, very legalistic terms, institutes, because they're, they, they kind of come up out of the blue by themselves. They fund themselves into existence, the big ones, and become part of the fabric of uh, running your society with a, a, a quasi-form of legal status and sometimes a complete form of legal status, the, this, the Bank of England is an institution. Um, you'll find the Rockefeller Foundation, to an extent, is an institution. And um, the Federal Reserve is an institution as opposed to being owned by the government, which really holds on behalf of the public. That's the way it was supposed to be. Anyway, we, ha- we have to realize there's many legal terms out there that really do mean a lot to those who create laws and understand laws and work with laws. When the Milner Group uh, branched in with joining with the Rhodes Foundation and the Rothschilds, um, they branched into the Royal Institute of International Affairs. 
and ran that organization. Same guys ran it for a long time. They wanted world wars, and Quigley talks about this in the book from their own records, their own archives, how they wanted world wars to bring in their type of global government. They set up the the institutions across the world to do so. Um, They set up the League of Nations after World War I. It would never have come into effect without World War I, and we're all for that. And then, because they didn't have enough power, they claimed uh, writers for this organization, like H.G. Wells and others, said, we need another war. And they had their second world war. And you do not realize the impacts that that's had on all our lives right to the present day, because all these big organizations, international organizations, which work under the United Nations, are really directing our life. And that's what they mean when they talk about global governance. It's opposed to government. It's governance, which really is government. It really is government. Of course it is. It has the force of law once it's signed into treaties. And the United Nations was set up to have an equivalent department involved for every bureaucratic department to deal with society in your own nation. Everything from building codes all the way up the line, uh, they have their own one there, you see. And in fact, they give out all the, the laws that are signed into treaties, or signed into law via treaties, to the countries that sign. But you don't realize, too, that uh, their idea was based on the British system. The Britain was to be um, the really the, the, the founding post, you might say, um, the foundation for this world global system with a system of what they called free trade, which is not free, everything in it's very suspicious until you really read what it really means and get into it. It really is restricted trade for, for everyone and allowing uh, free trade just for the big international corporations. The world they envisaged, of course, at the top was a world where they do away with all small private businesses. The middle class was to be demolished in every country across the world. The working classes would work for as long as they had their plant jobs, but they already had it planned when they set up the GATT organization, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, back in, I think it was 1949. And every year or so, they had meetings across the planet to keep pushing for this this um, free trade idea, which would bind countries together legally under obliga- obligations and... Uh, that worked right up until the um, World Trade Organization was founded in the, in the 90s. And, of course, it's the same charter for the GATT organization that they use as they transform themselves into the World Trade Organization. They are now really basically de facto an institution which direct the trade of the world, who can trade with who. They can technically put forward for fining countries that don't go along in certain cutbacks of trading or withholding trading or stopping trade coming into your country. And you see, nations used to protect themselves naturally from uh, goods being dumped on your doorstep uh, when you're trying to produce the same goods within your own countries. Same went with the farmers too. Farmers um, had to make their living. It was a very hard job for, for farmers. And they worked from morning till night. I've met lots of them and from different countries. They're all the same, very hard-working people. And um, after World War II, even they found that they were under massive national governmental bodies within their own countries because they'd interfered and got right into all the, the running of their farms 
and their food systems because of the war. That was the excuse the governments gave to themselves. So each country had a ministry of agriculture set up. But now, of course, with the, the GATT treaty the, in 49, they would go and work with the world, the, 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 their treaty, the, the Department of Agriculture of the United Nations. So they're institutions, you see, that are really running the world as under a form of governance, global governance. And they said in their early treaties too that they couldn't go too far at one time. They always take the pulse of the public and they never start a premature revolution, as Albert Pike said. And all of this really are social revolutions and economic revolutions that we're talking about. You've got to understand that. Most revolutions are bloodless. This article here is about the World Trade Organization and now calling for the U.S. to cut the farm subsidies in their own country. And they also want to dump, you know, cheap stuff inside America and put the rest of the farmers out, which suits the big agri-food businesses well because they take them all over, you see, amalgamate them all into huge, huge farms. At the United Nations, it should be mentioned too, at their uh, agricultural department, they did say, it's up there in record, that one of their, their, their CEOs said that um, food was too important to be left to farmers. You see, and you better go into their their agenda, their manifesto there to find out where they're going with it, because they tell you where they're going with it. The UN eventually is to be in charge of all the food in the world, and they will dish it out accordingly in ration quota systems to the regions, and America will be part of one region. And you'll also be told, here's the conditions that go with it, and you've got to bring down your populations, we won't give you extra rations, and so on, and so on. But this article here, it says, so they're calling for the U.S. to cut farm subsidies from the World Trade Organization, formerly called GATT, G-A-T-T. And it says, um, it says the, they want them to cut their farm subsidies, saying they were so considerable that they could affect market prices. In a report analyzing Washington's policies since 2007, the trade body said that while promoting its exports, the United States should also reduce distorting measures, including support for agriculture. Support for agriculture should be, should be done away with. So the World Trade Organization noted that support granted to the sector under the multi-billion dollar 2008 Farm Act are mostly linked to prices and or production. Thanks to the support, producers of cereals, oil seeds and cotton are effectively insulated from market prices, while sugar and dairy have market price support programs, said the WTO. The large size of the agriculture sector means that the absolute amount of support is considerable, varies from year to year, depending on food prices, and it can affect the whole world's prices, it added. See, understand in this global system, you've got global austerity as we all come down as they slap on more and more taxes to, to finish us off. That's what it's about in the West. The UN is demanding more and more billions and trillions of dollars from all the countries to run its organization as it rises even higher. And they've already announced, as I said yesterday from one article, that they are declaring themselves basically the de facto ruler of the world, which was obvious that they were going to do eventually. And... Um, and so they're, they're dishing out more and more laws to get their agenda through quickly. Most folk are so far gone, they don't know anymore. They don't really care. You know that? Most folk don't care about anything. They're totally damaged and domesticated. Back after this break.
Hi folks, we're back. We're cutting through the matrix, just talking about how everything's done at the right time with their 10, 50, 70, 100 year plans. They have plans for every facet of society, including water takeover of the world, that kind of stuff. And they, they do it incrementally. You cannot keep up with this if you tried. It's impossible. Even going through uh, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, uh, some of their speeches and some of the, the documents that came out of it, with thousands and thousands of pages per per meeting, you can't keep up with this kind of stuff. And that's only one organization working with all the other ones at the United Nations. So well, it's not it's not meant, you see, that we really understand what's really going on. We're we're focused by the media on election time. That's all. Where you you pick the best uh, pantomime actor and. Uh, You'll, 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 you'll hope for the best and then you hate them four years later and get someone else in. So that's um, really how, how the world is run, is by institutions and non-governmental organizations which have set up their own little United Nations uh, foundation, basically, or institution to control democracy and eventually eradicate it, of course, and republicanism too. But anyway, here they are bitching about the U.S.'s farm prices and policies, and it's, it, they go on about so the, the agriculture accounts for only 0.8% of the U.S. GDP and employs just 1.4% of its labor force, noted Roberto uh, Azevedo, Brazil's envoy to the WTO. Now, you know darn well that this named Brazil to come up as an up-and-coming nation. That means that big money is to be flooded into Brazil by the big boys, the globalists, to bring it up to a really high standard. And so they get Brazil, uh, who will obviously be bringing a lot of stuff into the U.S., uh, to bitch about uh, the U.S.'s trade policies so that they'll lower them and allow all their stuff to be dumped within the U.S. That's what it's about. And um, as I say, that's only one of so many. And just going through, as I say, the, the, the GATS, then the transformation to the WTO, and there are thousands and thousands of pages uh, it's like reading, uh, it's, it's typical socialist uh, uh, gibberish. They cannot say anything plainly. They have to do it in a strange bureaucraties that I first read uh, from uh, Sydney Webb and Beatrice Webb from the Fabian Society. That's how they wrote. They were the, the really masters at setting up that bureaucraties and uh, subsection this and paragraph that pertaining to yada, yada, yada. And they go on and on and on. It's not meant for you to read through, it's meant to switch you off so you can't read through it and know what's happening. For those that are trying, that is. Very few folk try or care. And I'll put this link up on the site, member at the end of the show, and all these links, in fact. Now, here's the EU. I mean, people really sit and watch this monster being created and then up and running. And each year now, because they're on a roll now, they've conquered everything, they've signed everybody's sovereignty away into their own and they are the supremo of the whole of Europe, this new giant Soviet system. And they are not democratic, they are authoritarian. They've made that quite plain. And that is to be the role model for the rest of the unifications of the Americas and elsewhere too. So it says here in the BBC, 29th of September, the EU lays out sanctions to punish budget rebels. So here they go, you see. They no sooner have you all amalgamated, the last year's sovereignty is gone. And here they're at, at you um, to to manage your budgets, or they're going to fine you. Now here you fine who? 
Find the governments. Is it? Well, what's the, go- the governments are, get tax money from the public. That's who's going to pay all the fines. They've already been hammered by this planned economic crisis and the bank bailouts and a whole bunch of other things. And, uh, and here they are going to get hammered with uh, being naughty for not balancing their budgets properly. It says the European Commission has unveiled plans to punish countries. Punish them. Yeah, this, is like a, this is like school, isn't it? To punish countries that fail to bring their debts under control and pose a potential risk to the euro. The potentials include automatic fines for countries that do not manage their finances or their economies properly. Now, don't kid yourself for an instant that the, the big bank of the European bank uh, is in cahoots with all the central banks of all these nations as well. Of course they are. They're all the same people, really, and they're often related to each other. Uh, they know what's going on. They, they set it up this way. So it says the fines would also affect non-Eurozone countries such as the UK through the suspension of EU aid. So blackmail again. The Commission's proposal will now need to be approved by national governments and the European Parliament. Well, you see, there's nowhere here where the people have any say in anything. Their own national governments are going to sign away the last little bit and say, okay, they can now punish us and fine us vast amounts of money that you, the taxpayers, are going to pay. This is disgusting. This happens. I've watched this my whole life, getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and folk just chomp away there and, you know, chomp their popcorn and blow gum and watch the movies. It says, however, the French government has previously expressed reservations about the idea of automatic fines. They're fining the countries already for not allowing certain companies in that don't match up to their work standards, for instance. That's the law. You're going to pay billions if you don't let them in. It says here that the fines would apply to non-Eurozone countries, such as the UK, according to the Economics Affairs Commissioner Ole Wren. At a news conference, he said that all 27 European Union members could have fines deducted from the funds, such as regional aid, because they're all regions now, you see, that they receive from the EU budget. That's a little bit of their tax money they get back for giving about 150% more in. Back with more again after this. Listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, we're back, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just reading this little article here about uh, the EU, the, the big regime at the top, and it is a regime. It's non-democratic, it's authoritarian, and its job is now becoming very, very manifest as they screw everybody out with the little cash they got left. It's always the taxpayers we're talking about here that suffer even from the fines that governments are slapped with. And they're talking about keeping the countries within their, their GDP for the year, not overspending. Well, if you get slapped with millions of pounds fine or dollars fine, uh, how, how is that going to help you keep under your budget? Hmm? Crazy. But listen to the language of it, too. It says, um, uh, if these sanctions would have to be implemented, the euro area member states would pay straight from their treasury, while the regime, and this is the terms they use, this is from their site, while the regime for the EU27 would work so that we would suspend payment appropriations, said Mr. Wren. 
The proposed new rules aim to prevent a repeat of this summer's debt crisis. They're blaming the public for the debt crisis when the Eurozone stepped in to bail out the debt-laden Greek government. President Barroso said that countries that overspend will be punished. Naughty, naughty, little children. The Commission's President, Jose Manuel Barroso, said they marked a sea change in the way economic governance is dealt with in the European Union. Really? Hmm. Economic governance. Well, that's government, you see. When they have the force of law, that's government. Don't be put off by their terms. Or the fact that it was special governmental, governmental departments called governance. Governance for this part, that part, and the other. The pressure we've been under since the crisis started clearly shows more clearly than ever, as the famous speech goes, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's also no such thing as a free deficit. And then they go into all... See, they want eventually to go into every country's books, do away with the, the, the country's um, collecting of taxes and all the rest of it, and hand it all over to the International Monetary Fund. That's part of the agenda. Now, when they're, when they're bankrupting and completely reorganizing these countries and calling them little states or regions. Uh, they're getting protests, of course, by the people who were hit the first and the hardest, and that's the poorest of them all. It says European cities are hit by anti-austerity protests. Uh, tens of thousands of people from around Europe have marched across Brussels in a protest against spending cuts by some EU governments. Spain has held a general strike with protesters in Barcelona clashing with the police and torching a police car. Other protests against austerity measures have been held in Greece, Italy, the Irish Republic, and Latvia. Trade unions say EU workers may become the biggest victims of a financial crisis set off by bankers and traders. No, no, no. According, according to that thing I just read there, it's all your fault. It's the people's fault, according to Barroso. Uh, many governments across the 27-member bloc have imposed punishing cuts in wages, pensions, and employment to deal with spiraling debts. On Wednesday night, Portugal's minority government announced proposals to cut civil servants' pay and state spending while raising taxes. Ah, it's always raising taxes in an attempt to lower the country's debt levels. And it goes on and on and on. And Britain, the government is planning to slash spending by up to 25% in some areas. That's, again, your more cuts to your hips. <laughs> Can you call it health care anymore, eh? Can you? <laughs> Well, France has seen angry protests against a planned increase in the minimum, minimum retirement age. So police sealed off the EU headquarters and barricaded banks and shops ahead of the protests in Brussels. It was described by unions as a day of action against the slogan, no to austerity, priority jobs and growth. So, yeah, but uh, that's not the plan. The plan is to bring us all down to pretty well third world status. This is a new Soviet, do you understand? And Barroso and all these characters are utter world socialists, internationalists. They have no favorite peasants in any country, even the ones that were born in. Now, as I say, you've got to go into Carl Quigley's tragedy in hope and the Anglo-American establishment if you want to know what the big long-term plan happens to be. And once you read it, you realize that even since it was written, a lot of what he talked about that would happen from the late 60s onwards, has already been implemented. He goes into the need to set up a world government under a United Nations authority and how the the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the CFR, were the ones behind it setting it up, making sure the governments put the funding into it and making sure it was going off in the right directions. That's what it's about. It's all pretty well completed today. 
We're also being poisoned. I've told folk before, you know, forget about the fact to try to bring down the populations. When you've read it enough of the big boys' articles, and there's so many of them, especially in the 40s and 50s, were tremendously open with their, with their, their ideas on bringing down populations by injections and by uh, altering the food uh, to sterilize people, um, putting stuff even in the drinking water, which would make them a bit dumber and stupid, more easily managed. That's all been accomplished. Now, when they have world meetings about depopulation, they don't sit waiting for Santa Claus to come in so they can give them their wish list. They obviously implement these particular agendas that they scheme up with, and they are in cahoots with Big Pharma. Big Pharma is part of the military-industrial complex. And so, yes, they have been doing it their whole life. Everyone now was guaranteed to come down with cancers. Everyone. They're teaching that to all interns and, and, and students who go into medicine. They're taught that right off the bat, that this is normal. They're given no history of previous times when, it, when all these cancers were not normal. They're, all, they're, they're taught the, the new reality. Yeah, it's always been this way. You've always had people just drop them dead with cancers. And that's what they will believe. Every generation believes what it's told with their particular indoctrination. But here's an article here about the flu jab, too. And this one's from Australia. And it says, a flu jab too close for comfort, September the 29th. Just hours after a doctor jabbed Sharon Chopin's or Coppin's children with the world, uh, world's first flu vaccine, a first type, her three-year-old daughter, uh, Alavia, turned purple. As Coppin uh, raised the shivering uh, Alavia to a Perth hospital emergency ward, her husband called an ambulance for their one-year-old twins, Byron and Letitia, who began convulsing and vomiting at home. Little did the panicked parents realize that the flu shot provided free by the West Australian health authorities <laughs> had never been tested in children through clinical trials. No one warned us this could happen, uh, Copen says, of the febrile con- convulsions that afflicted one in every 110 Australian children injected with Fluvax, which combines three strains of seasonal and swine flu. By the way, that's the kind they wanted to shout here this year, too. They put the swine flu one in, the, the seasonal one. It says, I just took the doctor's word, and the doctor obviously trusted that the government had done all the testing. I've told you that for years. The whole of medicine is faith-based. Oh, right down to the person who sticks the, the needle in you, uh, believes what it says on that vial. They believe that through this faith-based system that all the right things have been done and nothing bad is going to happen. And what they say is in that vial is what actually is in it. Anyway, uh, she says, if I had known it hadn't been tested, I would never have let my children be used as guinea pigs. I was trying to protect them, not put them in harm's way. Copen is flabbergasted to discover some of the Federal Department of Health and Aging's top immunization advisors, <laughs> this again too is a naivety of people, eh? have links with the drug company that created the vaccine that landed her children in hospital. Uh, you'd think there'd be some something to say about a conflict of interest, but there's not unless no one, if no one says it. The Perth mother is not the only one to raise an eyebrow over the relationships between Australia's health authorities and the pharmaceutical industry. Some independent researchers are questioning the system in which scientists affiliated with drug companies can also advise the government on matters that affect the pharmaceutical sector. They had that in the U.S. too, uh, with the last flu shot as well, the big scare that never was. And um, as they sold their billions of useless drugs, 
uh, for a flu that didn't exist. But anyway, um, it was found there too that the guy who'd really been in charge of it for the U.S. had worked for the, the pharma company and still did stuff, worked work for the pharma company that was producing it. And you get the same in Britain and elsewhere too. It's all utterly corrupt. But they do have a job to do, and that's bring us down, make us autistic, or at least at least a little bit stupid, and sterilize us in the process. That's how it's done, folks. It's been done that way since the, since the, the Salk vaccine came out. Because Dr. Salk gave the wonderful polio vaccine, who was just so concerned about children coming down with polio, happened to be the top member of the Eugenical Society for the States and Britain, and he wrote lots and lots of papers about the need to sterilize the public and get rid of the unfit and so on. Read your history. The, work, the WA government's uh, independent review into the seasonal flu vaccine scare has recommended that the DHA formally review and address any perceived or real concerns in peak bodies with regard to conflict of interest without going nowhere unless the public demand it. And uh, so that's Australia for you too. This flu vaccine which triggered febrile convulsions in children at nine times the expected rate was produced by CSL Limited, Australia's homegrown pharmaceutical giant. CSL also manufactured the federal government's $131 million stockpile of Panvax swine flu vaccine. The Australian last week uh, uh, revealed that two members of the DHA's Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation are also members of CSL's Vaccine Advisory Board. (laughs) ATAGI Chairman Terry Nolan, Foundation Professor of the School of Population Health, at the University of Melbourne. You better check out what they mean by population health, folks, from their perspective. At the University of Melbourne and Deputy Chairman of the Research Committee of the National Health and Medical Research Council, the taggy member of Peter uh, Richmond as well, senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia School of Pediatrics, have declared their links with CSL, the, the company that made this stuff, including honorariums from the company in scientific journals. So... You know, that's how it goes, folks. It's all in the know. It's always been that way, by the way. And even the FDA in the U.S., the big farmers know that when they want something pushed through and the public might not go for it, uh, and some others, uh, because of some objections about it, they can always phone selected doctors within the FDA that have worked for them, and they're guaranteed to pass the stuff. They actually put the stuff out, and a lot of their emails were released last year showing this when they wanted to get certain drugs through and certain inoculations through. Contact Dr. So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so at the FDA. They're ours. They're our boys. That's how it works. That's how it really works. Now, I'm going to put an article up tonight, too. It's a link to cnn.com, and it's about chemicals in your food. This is if you're eating non-organic celery today, you may be ingesting 67 pesticides with it, according to a new report from the Environmental Working Group. The group's a non-profit focused on public health, and it scoured nearly 100,000 produce pesticide reports from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to determine what fruits and vegetables we eat have the highest and lowest amounts of chemical residue. Most alarming are the fruits and vegetables dubbed the Dirty Dozen, which contain 47 to 67 pesticides per serving. These foods are believed to be most susceptible because of soft skin that tends to absorb more pesticide. This is critical if you'll know what they're consuming. Well, what's the point? You know what you're consuming, but really most folk have, can't afford any alternative. 
That's also known at the top, right? It says that the list is based on pesticide tests conducted after the produce was washed with USDA high-powered pressure water systems. The numbers reflect the closest thing to what consumers are buying at the store. Uh, they suggest uh, limiting consumption of pesticides by purchasing organic for the 12 fruits and veggies. Well, how many folk can afford that in today's market? They're all losing their jobs and their homes and all the rest of it. It says you can reduce your exposure to pesticides by up to 80% by buying the organic version of the Dirty Dozen, Rosenthal said. Well, maybe Mr. Rosenthal can. Then they go to list the ones that are really high on it, all the, all the different uh, fruit and so on, and the stuff that's more likely to get it, and some of the veggies too. It says not all non-organic fruits and vegetables have a high pesticide level. Some produce has a strong outer layer that provides a defense against pesticide contamination. The group founder found a number of non-organic fruits and vegetables dubbed the Clean 15 that contained little to no pesticide. That's listed there as well for those who are interested. But really, we're, we're just walking test tubes when we eat all this uh, rubbish. Plus, you have the GMO factor, too, which supposedly they're putting into the States quicker and quicker. Canada's already a goner because they, they were the guinea pigs for 10 years before the government had to admit it. We didn't even know we were eating the rubbish. Uh, but uh, that's the way it goes. You see, democracy is over. It never really existed. And you're under authoritarianism now. You take it or leave it. Now, there's an article here as well about uh, from the TSA uh, secure flight program and um, it says here they're going into the next phase of secure do you understand they keep releasing out these things or oh, you're going to get x-rayed here oh, it'll all be surface don't worry then they come out and say oh we're going to x-ray you we're going to x-ray your bones as well for ID but don't worry about it it's safe then once you've accepted that they go see that's training you Pavlovian style to the next step and the next step and the next step and it says here uh, secure flight is behind the, the scenes program that enhances the security of domestic and international commercial air travel through the use of improved watch list making or matching. By collecting additional passenger data, it will improve the travel experience for all airline passengers, including those who have been misidentified in the past and locked up and tortured. <laughs> I thought I'd add that part. When passengers travel, they'll be required to provide the following secure flight data to their airline when making uh, the reservation. It says, name as it appears on the government-issued ID when when traveling. Government-issued ID, that's for internal as well. Your date of birth, your gender, and your redress number. The airline will transmit this information to Secure Flight. It's another company who uses it to perform watch list matching. This serves to prevent individuals on the no-fly list from boarding an aircraft and to identify individuals on the selectee list for enhancing screening. After matching passenger information against government watch lists, Secure Flight transmits the matching results back to airlines. Airlines must request and collect full name, date of birth and gender, readers number, and so on and so on. They started actually on August 15, 2009 for domestic flights, and as of October the 31st, 2009 for international flights. However, Secure Flight will be phased in with each airline. Passengers should not be concerned if particular airlines do not ask them to provide the additional information right away. It should not impact their travel. Then he goes on to explain what these supposed secure flight questions are and all the rest of it. And by the way, they're also going back to, not apart from all your body scans and magnetometers and all the rest of it, 
um, they're also going to go back to pat you down as well. So they, 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 they see you naked and through their screening stuff. Then they pat, I guess, the ones they select down, the ones that they'll get off on. And uh, that's what's all coming along. We're, we're treated just like animals. Behaviorism, you know, Skinnerism, that's what it is, Skinner technology, Skinner techniques, that's what's being used. And the public adapts. They do. They do adapt. We're the most adaptable species on the planet. What a sad thing to say, but it's in their worst interest. If you have no, if you have no <laughs> pride in yourself at all, you understand you are defeated. You are completely and utterly defeated. Back with more after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. You know, just finishing up there with uh, the article on uh, the latest step-by-step phasing in of more totalitarian rules uh, for travel. And there's an awful lot more to go, believe you me, in, even internal travel with your cars and so on. It's big, big plans coming down the pike. Because you're in the new world Soviet system, the socialist system. And it's authoritarian, as I say. But when you have no pride or dignity left in yourself, you're conquered conquered. And you see, you live in a degenerate society already that are taking 50 years to totally degenerate the society. And that's part of the reason why there's no pride or dignity in the individuals or in their fellow man. They see, they see everyone and see them as themselves, just degenerate. And that they've lost their ability to even think of themselves as anything um, with, with human rights or special rights or anything of the kind. In the Soviet Union, they had collective punishment. And this is a system they're using worldwide now. If someone or a group of people did something they didn't like at the government, they'd pass a law to, to basically affect everyone. Now, if millions and millions of people, say in Britain, for instance, are good law-abiding citizens, and the government intentionally brought people in from countries that they, they planned to bomb down the road in the future, they knew they'd cause trouble. But why should all the rest of the people have to suffer because they brought a few people in who demonstrate. Hmm? That's collective punishment. You're all suspects. We can't discriminate, they tell you. That's the reasons that they give you. Rubbish like that. So you all have to suffer because of the wrongs of a few. I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, an article here, too, will just finish off with a family to receive $1.5 million in the first ever vaccine autism court award. CBS News. First court award and vaccine autism claim is a big one. CBS News has learned that the family of Hannah Poling will receive more than $1.5 million for her life care, lost earnings and pain and suffering for the first year alone. In addition to the first year, the family received more than $500,000 per year to pay for Hannah's care. Those familiar with the case believe the compensation could easily amount to $20 million over the child's lifetime. Hannah was described as normal, happy, and precocious in her first 18 months. That's normal to get up to seeing Dada, Mama, and so on. Then in July 2000, she was vaccinated against nine diseases in one doctor's visit. Measles, mumps, rubella, as typical, polio, varicella, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and haemophilus influenzae. All at once. 
Afterward, her health declined rapidly. That's generally what happens. They, they go backwards. They stop saying dada, mama, and laughing, and so on. She developed high fevers because the, the stuff attracts your brain, folks. And with people who end up with autism, it's more obvious, obviously. It affects everyone who gets it. You're all told, the doctors are all told to tell every mother, oh, don't worry, there'll be a bit of a fever. Uh, and where's the fever? Look, it's in your brain, folks. It's a, your, your brain is hot. It kills off, you know, inflammation kills off cells, you understand that. But then again, you, be, you become a very good citizen that bends over airports. It says, she stopped eating, didn't respond when spoken to, began showing signs of autism, began having screaming fits. In 2002, Hannah's parents filed an autism claim in federal vaccine court. Five years later, the government filed an autism, um, five years later, the government settled the case before trial and had it sealed. It's taken more than two years for both sides to agree on how much Hannah will be compensated for her injuries. In acknowledging Hannah's injuries, the government said vaccines aggravated an unknown mitochondrial disorder. It's not a disorder, by the way. We're all different. And you'll live fine and prosper fine if they don't stick their damn poisons in you. And their bacterial and viral warfare as well. That's also in there. But they try to blame the victims, saying, oh, you're a bit different, you see. We, they aim, we aim for the mass people, but you're a bit different. It was really your fault. A mitochondrial disorder, huh? Uh, which, ha- which didn't cause her autism, but resulted in it. You see, oh, that's a shysters for you in court. It's unknown how many other children have similar undiagnosed mitochondrial disorder. All other autism test cases have been defeated at trial. Approximately 4,800 are awaiting disposition in federal vaccine court. Though, everyone gets hit with this. And, you know, attention deficit disorder and all the other disorders that come up with they have, they find it very hard, um, they find it very hard to even diagnose these things or even tell you what they are. But the fact is, everyone has been hit. We're all, we're all quite a few points low or lower than we should be. They lowered the official IQ quite a few years ago on the advice of the UN. Okay, so from Hamish myself and Chair Canada is good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>